Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This is the Tom Hartman Program. I want to talk about Big Pharma for a minute here. Big Pharma spent a small fortune last year. Well, they do every year, buying politicians. And one of the things that they buy politicians to prevent is the possibility of you and I buying drugs from Canada at retail, filling prescriptions from Canada or other foreign countries. And the, the reason that they say that they don't want us to buy, you know, that the politicians who take the money from Big Pharma say that they don't want us buying our drugs from Canada is because of safety. All right, Canadian drugs are not as safe. Now, you know, I lived near the Canadian border. I grew up in Michigan near the Canadian border, lived in Vermont for 10 years near the Canadian border, two hours away. And I don't recall any stories about Canadians dropping dead all over the place because their drug supply was contaminated. But we are seeing this now here in the United States. There's a compound called NDMA. It is one of the ingredients of rocket fuel. The massive contamination of NDMA was discovered west of Los Angeles in an area where they were actually manufacturing rockets. It gets into the water supply. Highly miscible is the word. It means super soluble. You put a couple of drops of it into an aquifer, like, you know, miles and miles of underground water. And within days, it has contaminated all of that water. And you say, how could a couple of drops contaminate all the water? The FDA says that the permissible, acceptable daily human intake is 96 nanograms. That's 0.000096 of one milligram. An amount that's just so insanely tiny. 96 nanograms is the maximum that the FDA says we're allowed to take. Well, what they're finding now is some drugs that are manufactured in India using raw materials made in China that are sold in the United States as generics. And by the way, 80% of all drugs sold in the United States are generics. Are contaminated by NDMA at levels up to 20 times that 96 microgram threshold. Now, why should we care about this? Well, it's one of the most potent carcinogens out there. It's insanely carcinogenic. Cancer researchers talk about this. It's, it's also extremely poisonous. A Chinese graduate student, medical student, put a few drops in his roommate's water. It killed him. He thought it would be a joke. A Canadian grad student did the same thing. He put some NDMA in a colleague's apple pie. It killed him. It is insanely poisonous. So ever since 1987, when Congress and the Reagan administration cut a corrupt deal with Big Pharma to ban 
the import of retail pharmaceuticals in the United States. This dates back to Reagan. This is another thing that Reagan did, 1987. You may no longer fill your prescription with a Canadian pharmacy. That's when drug prices started exploding here in the United States because the pharmaceutical manufacturers have a captive audience. And they're saying those Canadian drugs are not safe, but we would be glad to sell you some contaminated drugs from India. I mean, first it was blood pressure medications. Then it was Zantac, proton pump inhibitor, this anti-upset stomach drug. And not just Zantac, but all of its generic versions. Now they've identified this in metformin. Metformin is a drug that doctors give to people who typically are overweight and are at risk of developing type 2 diabetes. And they also give it to people in the early stages of type 2 diabetes because it helps the body regulate blood sugar. It is the most widely prescribed drug in the world right now. And it's now also contaminated by NDMA because these pharmaceutical companies are bringing it in from China and India. Now, if you want the brand name version of any of these drugs, they are available. They're just much more expensive because they're manufactured in Switzerland or in Germany or in Ireland, which is where most brand name drugs are manufactured. Most of the generics are manufactured in India. So if we could just get rid of this 1987 law, this Reagan law, that said that it's illegal to import drugs from Canada, then Americans could buy Canadian brand name drugs manufactured in Germany or Switzerland or even in Canada. Instead of buying generics here that are probably about the same price as the Canadian brand names. Or better alternative, Democrats for years have been talking about bringing our jobs, our manufacturing jobs back to the United States. Why don't we bring back our pharmaceutical manufacturing jobs? Tom Hartman here with you. Just a couple of quick data points and then I'll pick up your phone calls here. The number of citizens who have lost their health care coverage since the pandemic began in the United Kingdom, zero. In Spain, zero. In South Korea, zero. In Norway, zero. Japan, zero. Italy, zero. Germany, zero. France, zero. Finland, zero. Denmark, zero. Canada, zero. Belgium, zero. Australia, zero. The United States, 14,600,000 people have lost their health care coverage since the beginning of the pandemic, mostly because they lost their jobs. What's wrong with this picture? Bill in Columbus, Indiana. Hey, Bill, what's up? Medicare Advantage plans again. My understanding that the reason Medicare and your supplemental plans can't have the extras or the advantages the Advantage plans have is because Congress made it that way. That Medicare can't have dental. Medicare can't have uh, your gym subscription because they pass laws not to allow them not to have it, only to give the Advantage plans that advantage. You're right. The benefits that Medicare offers are defined and established by Congress. And when, during the Bush administration, Congress decided to privatize Medicare, and that's what they did when they passed Medicare Part C, when they decided to privatize Medicare, they allowed, and they've actually altered the law several times in the years since then. In fact, they did it again just two years ago. They allow some of these other things to be offered. But the thing you've got to ask yourself is, how is this insurance company that I'm buying this privatized Medicare Advantage plan from if they've got to take 20% off the top to pay for their CEO's salaries and their senior executive's salaries and their, and their dividends, and they do, 
They've got to pull 20% off the top. And they're offering another, say, 4 or 5% worth of benefits in the terms of eyeglasses and, and gym memberships. Where are they making that up? Yes, exactly. And the place they make that up is by saying to you when you get sick and you go to the hospital, oh, hey, that anesthesiologist, he's not in network. He wasn't covered. You're going to have to pay that $22,000 bill. That's how they make it up. Well, I'm, up and I'm upset that we, that we have to even have the uh, pay for the extra 20% to a, a private insurance company. I don't yeah, agree with yeah. that. Either. I, I'm with you. I, w- I would love to see Medicare cover everybody. It's you know it's unfortunate so, that so Lyndon Johnson we, couldn't get that passed. We've got, the Republicans. To vote the right, we've got to vote the right people in. I yeah, don't care what they yeah. call it. We've got to get the privatization out of Medicare. I agree. I agree. And frankly, Medicare Part D, the drug plan that they added to that, and I think that was in 2005, when they passed Medicare Part D, they they built it into the law that the government, the federal government, Medicare administration, cannot negotiate with the with the drug companies. And so the drug companies have set it up so, you know, you pay the per pill price even though you buy a lot more than one pill. It's just insane. The whole thing is insane. It's a giant scam. You know, this whole Medicare Advantage thing is it's it's more grifting brought to you courtesy of the Republican Party. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Anyhow, Sandra in Omaha, Nebraska. Hey, Sandra, what's up? Hey, Tom. On the Medicare issue, about well, exactly a year ago, I had been on Medicare, and then an insurance broker that I worked with for like five years had suggested a new program, and so we'd switched to that, and that was the year before. And I, I was talking to a provider, and they said, no, no, you're not on Medicare anymore. You're on Medi- Medi- Advantage, Medicare Advantage or whatever. And I said, no. Right. No, I, I had said I wanted to be on Medicare. And so she says, well, you better talk with him. So I did, and I found out, no, you aren't. I said, I want to switch back. That was on uh, sometime in late September. And so he said, well, switch you back, effective October 1st. October 2nd, I went into the hospital for a heart issue, and I was in intensive care for a solid week. When I came out, I was getting bills from the other insurance providers because it hadn't gone through yet. And I was getting oh, lots God. of medical bills that were my responsibility under that new yeah. plan. Yeah. And right. this is the luckily, problem with Medicare that one Advantage. day, they that don't cover one them. day difference. Yeah. That one day difference. I got it covered. And even though they haggled about it for about two months, they finally got it straightened out so that, yes, my coverage began October 1st. I went into the hospital October 2nd. Wow. So wow. You're, the matter it's, of that's one, good news. And the reason, by the way, yeah. Sandra, the reason why your insurance agent moved you to Medicare Advantage, this is why I just went online and bought my Medigap plan from the company that I bought it from online, is because yeah. they pay a commission to insurance right. salespeople right. to sell you Medicare Advantage. And it's a very healthy commission and they pay it every year. And so if they can move you over, you know, and you don't figure out how badly you've gotten scammed until you're, you know, a little bit older and a little bit sicker. And then it's too late to do anything about it, particularly if you're not, you know, within that window to, to, to change policies. You're just plain old SOL. Larry in Huntington Beach, California. Hey, Larry, what's on your mind? If people will check, there's at least one not-for-profit Medicare Advantage program that I've belonged to for 15 years, my wife has belonged to for 13 years, and it's better than any Cadillac program I've ever had. As I said, SCAN was set up by Medicare recipients who want a better way, so they set up a not-for-profit organization. And so, okay, you, you, you've got a good one, and I think that's marvelous, Larry. I'm still a f- do what you think is best, 
But I'm telling you, even nonprofits figure out a way to shovel some of this money. But the more important thing, I think, is that Medicare Advantage, when Medicare Advantage was set up in 2005 as a way of privatizing Medicare to destroy the Medicare program, the Congress, the Republicans in Congress set aside massive amounts of money. Your Medicare Advantage program is being subsidized by all the rest of us in ways that are destructive to Medicare. And the more people who go on Medicare Advantage, the more Medicare itself is going to be eroded. So, uh, you know, I'm glad it works for you. And I get it that there are some really bad programs out there. They're the ones that are typically advertised on TV. And there are some that are nowhere near as bad. In fact, uh, I know of one that's actually being run by a union. Or I believe I know of one that's being run by a union. But I still would never recommend them. Merwinna in Whitking, New Jersey. Am I saying any of that wrong? (laughs) Thank you very much. Uh, Kino in Lakeland, Florida. Hey, Kino, what's up? Several months ago, I talked with you and Congressman Pocan about these Medicare Advantage plans, and you seem to be against them for some reason. There's some negative factors, and you and the congressman said you were going to either look for some information to help us people make a choice and know the pros and cons of the Advantage plans or not, or either you and he were going to put together something, uh, a pamphlet or something to help us people know, because you seem to be against those advantage plans. Could you elaborate on that? Sure. Yeah, I don't I don't recall committing to a pamphlet, Kino, but yes, uh, socialsecurityworks.org, I think it is, by the way, Social Security Works, I think has information on this. But the bottom line is that in 2005, when Medicare Part, whatever it is, C, I guess, is, is what Medicare Advantage is, when Medicare Part C was passed by George W. Bush and the Republicans, it created an opportunity for health insurance companies to create privatized Medicare plans. These are not Medicare Advantage plans are not offered by the U.S. government. The U.S. government subsidizes the giant insurance companies. I mean, we're passing out hundreds of billions of dollars you know, a month to these giant companies to subsidize Medicare Advantage. But they are not Medicare plans, and they do have gotchas in them. They can refuse to pay your bills if you're not in network. Some acquire networks, some of them don't. You know, there's all kinds of variations. Each plan has its own little gotchas, and particularly the plans that look like really good deals, zero premium plans or, hey, we'll cover eyes and dental and everything else plans, those almost always have on the back end some sort of provision that makes it really, really hard 
for you to get covered for large expenses. They'll have holes in terms of hospitalization coverage or whatever. These plans may seem great when you first get them, but if you get seriously ill, Medicare Advantage can be a real problem, particularly if you get seriously ill outside your own hometown. And I did a deep dive on this when I became eligible for Medicare when I turned 65 four years ago. I continue to hold this opinion and I think there's good evidence for it. Almost a third of Medicare has now been privatized. Almost a third of all the people on Medicare are using these so-called Medicare Advantage plans, but they are not Medicare. The only connection that they have to Medicare is that they are subsidized with Medicare dollars, which is, by the way, hurting Medicare. Every Medicare Advantage plan sold hurts Medicare for everybody else. So I am just strongly opposed to these these plans and, and uh, say to anybody who's Medicare age, be very, very, very careful. What's much better to do is, in my opinion, is to sign up for regular Medicare and then get what's called Medigap coverage. Because with regular Medicare, back when Lyndon Johnson passed Medicare in, in, in 67, I think it was, the Republicans would only go along with it if the average person, quote, had skin in the game. In other words, there had to be 20%. You had to pay out of your own pocket. It was a BS argument. Their real argument was that they wanted a hole and opening for health insurance companies to participate in Medicare. And that's what that 20% was. And that's what those Medigap plans are. Now, they've taken that Medigap, camel's nose under the tent, and moved it into Medicare Advantage. That's the story. Am I making sense, Kino? Did I, did I clearly explain yes, what I'm saying yes, to you? Thank you. Okay. To sum okay. up, get regular Medicare and Medigap and not the Medicare Advantage plans. Is that the summary? That is my emphatic advice. <laughs> it's purely my opinion, uh, but I think that if you, uh, you know, the problem with doing the research on this is that the Medicare Advantage plans, because they're so profitable, I mean, this is a multi-billion dollar subsidy with your tax dollars in mind for these insurance companies. And so when you try to Google this information, it's really hard to find because they just bury the internet in BS. But, you know, what I'm telling you is absolutely the case. Kino, thank you for the call. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Medical Apartheid, The Dark History of Medical Experimentation on Black Americans from Colonial Times to the Present by Harriet A. Washington. This is from the introduction. On a sylvan stretch of New York's patrician Upper Fifth Avenue, just across from the New York Academy of Medicine, a colossus in marble august inscriptions and a bas-relief cadacious grace a memorial bordering Central Park. These laurels venerate the surgeon James Marion Sims, M.D., as a selfless benefactor of women. Nor is this the only statuary erected in honor of Dr. Sims. Marble monuments to his skill, benevolence, and humanity guard his native South Carolina State House, its medical school, the Alabama Capitol grounds, and a French hospital. In the mid-19th century, Dr. Sims dedicated his career to the care and cure of women's disorders and opened the nation's first hospital for women in New York City. He attended French royalty, his Grecian visage inspired oil portraits, and in 1875 he was elected president of the American Medical Association. Hospitals still bear his name, including a West African hospital that utilizes the eponymous gynecological instruments that he first invented for surgeries upon black female slaves in the 1840s. But this benevolent image vies with the detached Marion Sims portrayed in Robert Tom's J. Marion Sims Gynecological Surgeon, an oil representation of an experimental surgery upon his powerless slave, Betsy. Sims stands aloof, arms 
folded, one hand holding a metroscope, the forerunner of the speculum, as he regards the kneeling woman in a coolly evaluative medical gaze. His tie and morning coat contrast with her simple servant's dress, head rag, and bare feet. The painting, commissioned and distributed by the Park Davis Pharmaceutical House more than a century after the surgeries, as one of its a History and Medicine in Pictures series, takes telling liberties with the historical facts. Tom portrays Betsy as a fully clothed, calm slave woman who kneels complacently on a small table, hand modestly raised to her breast before a trio of white male physicians. Two other slave women peer around a sheet, apparently hung for modesty's sake, in a childlike display of curiosity. This innocuous tableau could hardly differ more from the gruesome reality in which each surgical scene was a violent struggle between the slaves and physicians, and each woman's body was a bloodied battleground. Each naked, unanesthetized slave woman had to be forcibly restrained by the other physicians through her shrieks of agony as Sims determinedly sliced then sutured her genitalia. The other doctors who could fled when they could bear the horrific screams no longer. It then fell to the women to restrain one another. I wanted to reproduce Tom's painting on the cover of this book, or at least in the text, but when I asked permission of its copyright holder, Pfizer Incorporated, the company insisted on reviewing the entire manuscript of this book before making a decision. As an independent scholar, I could not acquiesce to this, and I used another cover image. When I renewed my request to use the image within the text, Pfizer agreed to base its decision upon reading this chapter and an outline of the book. The Pfizer executives apparently were uncomfortable with what they read because they refused to grant permission to reproduce this telling image or even respond to my query after I supplied the requested chapter and outline. This act of censorship exemplifies the barriers some choose to erect in order to veil the history of unconscionable medical research with blacks. Betsy's voice has been silenced by history, but as one reads Sims' biographers and his own memoirs, a haughty, self-absorbed researcher emerges, a man who bought black women slaves and addicted them to morphine in order to perform dozens of exquisitely painful, distressingly intimate vaginal surgeries. Not until he had experimented with his surgeries on Betsy and her fellow slaves for years did Sims essay to cure white women. Was Sims a savior? or a sadist. It depends, I suppose, on the color of the women, you ask. Marion Sims epitomizes the two faces, one benign, one malevolent, of American medical research. Quote, of all the forms of inequality, injustice in health is the most shocking and the most inhumane. In 1965, Martin Luther King Jr. spoke those words in Montgomery, Alabama, at the end of the Selma to Montgomery march that had been attended by the black and white physicians of the Medical Committee for Human Rights. King had invited the doctors not only to give medical help to injured marchers, but also to witness the abuse suffered at the hands of segregationists. With these almost unnoticed words, King ushered in a new era in civil rights, because, as delegate to Congress Donna Christensen Christian, MD chair of the Congressional Black Caucus Health Brain Trust, has declared, health disparities are the civil rights issue of the 21st century. Thus, Dr. King's alarm over racial health injustice was prescient, and were he alive today, his concerns would be redoubled. Mounting evidence of the racial health divide confronts us everywhere we look, from doubled black infant death rates to African-American life expectancies that fall years behind whites. 
Infant mortality of African Americans is twice that of whites, and black babies born in more racially segregated cities have higher rates of mortality. The book, Medical Apartheid by Harriet A. Washington. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Burl in uh, Sierra Vista, Arizona. Hey, Burl, what's on your mind today? Well, I wanted to respond to Trump's comments on the VA, where he claims that the VA is a much better system now than it was before he took office. Uh, I've been in that system 52 years, and the last three have seen the lowest level of performance, in my opinion. I give absolute codels to the people who work there. They're fantastic. They're great. Mm -hmm. But uh, we've seen some changes. One of the big ones is, okay, wait times have gotten longer. It's much more difficult now to see a doctor. You're going to see a nurse or a nurse practitioner. That's a big change. Mm -hmm. The other thing is the Veterans Choice Program, which originally was a good program. Now they're trying it was to passed push by Obama into that. But yeah, I know Obama started that. But they're trying to push everybody into it. And if mm -hmm. you try to get an appointment, that's what the first thing you're going to hear about. And I finally flat told them, no, I'm not interested anymore. I want to see people in the VA. I've had three surgeries at one VA hospital. That's, they've been great, but that was before Trump came in. So he's way off base with this. Yeah, you know, he's on. got three guys down at Mar-a-Lago who have no military experience, never been in the military, and they are running the Veterans Administration from Mar-a-Lago by proxy. They've never been confirmed by the Senate. Their names aren't, you know, I mean, their names are public. You can read about it in the New York Times. But, I mean, this is how bizarre it gets, right? You pay you $200,000 to Donald Trump to be a Mar-a-Lago member, and you get to run the VA. Yeah, I learned that from you, by the way. Well, it's not a secret. I mean, you know, this this is something that has been widely reported and commented on. It's just, it's it's grim. Burl, I'm sorry to hear that the VA is not meeting your needs. I hope that things get better, and I wish you the best. Hope is probably the best word of the day. It's a word we need right now. Trevor in Rotterdam in the Netherlands. Hey, Trevor, what's up? Hi, Tom. Thank you for taking the call. I love the show. Your single-payer healthcare thing, and I don't get why you guys in the U.S. don't want it. And every time when we I do a video, I hear people saying, "I am okay now, so I don't want to pay for somebody else." And I'm just looking on the website because we also in the Netherlands have private health insurance companies. And the most expensive one that I found was 135 euros, comes in at 158 dollars. That means break my leg, I go to the hospital, I stay pay 158 dollars a month. Why can't wow. you guys do that? Because our Supreme Court said that billionaires and giant corporations may legally own politicians. 70 plus percent of Americans want a national health care plan. That yeah, number you, has been solid for quite some time now, but it's not happening well, I, because you've got a bunch of politicians but, who are taking money from the health insurance industry. This, this is the Joe Lieberman syndrome. He blew up the public option because he took over a million dollars from the insurance companies. But when I see people on YouTube videos, they're always saying, I'm sorted. I'm sorted. So I am, I am working. I got to help insurance to my company. So I'm sorted. So why would I pay for somebody else? That's Where propaganda. The the we're thinking like... 
You know, I, most of I Americans don't, don't think that way. I lose my job, and that is so strange to me. And I, I work at an IT company, and I have American colleagues, and all the American colleagues that leave the U.S. and are leaving in Europe are so happy. The only thing is why they won't go back is because they missed their family. But all of them yeah. that I know, yeah, you know, you get three weeks vacation, paid vacation, you get sick, you go to the hospital, you don't get any extra bills. It's mind-boggling that a country that's that advanced is still that backwards. I agree. I agree. And what you're looking at is the result of two things. Number one, the Supreme Court in 1976 and 78, and then doubling down on it in 2010 with Citizens United. The Supreme Court's saying that if a billionaire or a corporation wants to own a politician or even a couple hundred politicians, that's free speech and it's protected by the Constitution. It was arguably the worst Supreme Court decision since Dred Scott. I mean, it was just, it's obscene what they did. And what that did is it caused the health insurance industry, a multi-billion, you know, an industry that literally shows billions of dollars in profits every single month. And every profit, every penny of profit is from one of those companies saying to somebody, no, we're not going to pay for that. Your president, Europe cannot believe that a president went on national television and said about the extremist group, you know, stand by. That they should get ready, basically, stand by, yeah. There is never, like, I'm from Holland. We have a king who has no power. But if our president would say that, he would get called mid-press conference. Mid-press conference, like, this, yep. you have to talk. Because it's not normal. It's not a yeah. normal thing. And by having people so divided in the U.S. now at the moment, where you're for Trump or you're against Trump, and there is no middle way. Everybody who's saying that they're undecided are, I don't know, why, what are you still waiting for? Because there's a clear choice. Or you're for Trump or you're against. And there's no... Yeah, undecided people in the United States are either so badly uninformed that they have no idea what's going on, or they have an IQ below room temperature. I don't think that there's any, any serious person in this country who's actually undecided. You know, there, there are people who will say that in order to get interviewed on TV and stuff like that. But, you know, the people who are for Trump are basically white racists. That's the bottom line for most of them. And then the people who are promoting Trump, you know, the billionaires who are funding his campaigns, the billionaires who are funding the think tanks, the billionaires who own the television networks like Fox News, owned by billionaire Rupert Murdoch, the billionaires who own the radio networks that carry right-wing hate radio, they're just interested in having low taxes and not having to pay for other people's health care. But the vast majority of Americans, Trevor, would love to have an America that works as well as the Netherlands work. Would love to have it. And, and the biggest barrier to that is what the Supreme Court has decided. And now the Republicans want to make the Supreme Court even harder right wing than it was. Trevor, thank you for the call. It's great to hear from the Netherlands. Thank you very much. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity. And what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. 
We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance, so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Got a, a note this morning from one of the largest pharmacies in Canada that ships to the United States. They've got a lot of U.S. citizens who are customers of theirs. And I was one a number of years ago, and I'm still on their list. Continued increase in the broad range of pharmaceutical products going out of stock. It's been experienced by distributors worldwide, including in the U.S. Most of the products with an out-of-stock status have no estimated restock date, which is very unusual. This is very concerning because we've never seen so many products out of stock in the history of our business. The antidepressant Zoloft is now unavailable worldwide. Why? Because it comes out of China. The, the raw ingredients are almost exclusively made in China, and then the pills are processed in India. And China's having problems with COVID, and so it's a meltdown. Let's expand that logic to chicken, says uh, the Trump administration. Tony Corbo is on the line with us. He is the senior government affairs representative with Food and Water Watch and Food and Water Action. Food and A-N-D, foodandwaterwatch.org is the website. And Food and Water Watch also is the Twitter handle. Tony, welcome to the program. Tell us what the deal is here. What's the connection between chicken being grown in the United States and China? This has been going on for 15 years now. China has wanted to export poultry to the United States. It came about as a result of our mad cow case in, in 2003, where China was a big importer of U.S. beef, and then they stopped importing because of the mad cow case that was found here. And so when USDA attempted to restore our export market to China for beef, China came back and said, we want to be able to export poultry to the United States in exchange. In 2005, the George W. Bush administration proposed a rule that would allow China to export uh, poultry to the United States, but they put in a condition that the slaughtered chicken would have to come from an approved source. And at the time, the only approved sources were the U.S. and Canada. And we would ship the raw carcass over to China. They would process it, cook it, and then send it back here. And so in 2006, even though the USDA received many comments, most of them opposed to this scheme, USDA approved granting China equivalency status for their processing inspection system. But China was not satisfied with that. 
they kept on pressing USDA for their ability to process and slaughter their own poultry to send to the United States. And so while we haven't received too much chicken under the provisions of the 2006 rule, there was only one shipment, and then that happened in 2017, of 110 pounds of breaded chicken nuggets and, and patties. China has consistently tried to get USDA to let them ship their own poultry to the United States. And sure enough, in 2019, as part of the deal that the Trump administration signed with China to lessen the tensions in the trade war that the Trump administration essentially caused, USDA finally gave the go-ahead for China to ship its own poultry to the United States. They haven't done so yet, but it sets up the system for China to export to the United States. Now, outside of the obvious, anything made in China is taking jobs away from the United States and all that kind of thing. Uh, and I say that, you know, with some ambivalence as somebody who doesn't eat birds, you know, as a, as a vegetarian, an occasional pescatarian, I suppose. But why should we be concerned about the fact that our chicken might start coming from China? Well, I mean, there are a couple of things. First of all, China's food safety record is very checkered. One of the reasons that USDA would not allow, originally would not allow China to ship its own poultry here to the United States is that China hid for the longest periods of time the extent to which their poultry flocks were infected with high pathogenic avian influenza. So that was one of the restrictions that was placed originally. What's interesting that's happened fairly recently is that China has now designated two Cargill plants. Cargill built plants in China for poultry slaughter and poultry processing. And so now those two plants, they constitute half of the approved plants that China has designated being able to export to the United States. One of the new Cargill plants has the ability to slaughter 225 birds per minute. The current maximum here in the United States, even under a deregulated inspection system, is 175. So we're fearing what's going to happen here is that eventually U.S. companies are going to start outsourcing their chicken processing abroad, and specifically China. Now, Cargill is not the only company that has plants there. Tyson has plants in China. Keystone Foods has plants in China. OSI has plants in China. So it could be just a matter of time before China starts designating those factories to be able to export to the United States. There's been all sorts of controversy over the safety of our poultry plants, our meatpacking plants, and it's really been highlighted during this COVID crisis here in the United States. Right. So why not ship everything off to China, have them process it, because those workers don't have the, the same, the same so, right. Right. So right now we are desperately freaked out because drugs are not available in the United States because they're all made in China. Pretty soon it might be food is not available in the United States because it's made in China. 70% of our apple juice is actually imported from China right now. A lot of our seafood is imported from China. So poultry could be the very next thing that winds up shifting abroad. And this is just so that giant companies like Cargill can kill more chickens per hour and pay their workers lower wages than they're paying the people, uh, which are probably already fairly low wages here in the United States to uh, slaughter and process and, and raise, for that matter, these chickens. Is this going to put American farmers out of business? 
it could very well put American farmers out of business if these companies, I mean, you have these unfair contracting practices here to begin with, the big poultry companies that essentially pay farmers peanuts to raise the poultry that's eventually slaughtered in these big factories here in the United States. And so it could very well shift the production abroad. Tony Cordo with Food and Water Watch, foodandwaterwatch.org, the website. Tony, thanks for dropping by. Thank you for having me on, Tom. It's like Trump has given all his lip service to stopping China. It's like, hey, let's outsource chicken to China, just like we outsource toys and pharmaceuticals and electronics and fill in the blank. in Port Orchard, Washington. Hey, Anthony, what's up? Yeah, I'm just wondering why aren't the Democrats out in numbers, the congressmen and senators, pushing back? I mean, I can't turn on the radio, the TV, social media, where I'm not seeing Rudy and Trump's clowns out there pushing this conspiracy theories. This has got me worried. I mean, you know, the Democrats appear to be sitting back, and I don't put anything past the crazies anymore. I mean, I really yeah. don't. I can tell you what I'm what I believe to be their strategy. You know, I could be wrong about this, but I think that this is what's going on. The news media is doing a pretty good job outside of Fox News and right wing hate radio. The news media is doing a pretty good job of pointing out that Trump's got nothing. He's lost the election. He's flailing. I mean, it's at the top of The New York Times and The Washington Post. It's everywhere. And if Democratic politicians come out and outside of leadership, I mean, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer have both made clear what they think and other Democrats are doing it. I mean, I saw a thing from Eric Swalwell this morning on Twitter. There are Democrats who are speaking out. But generally speaking, I think that either they're not getting coverage or more likely they don't want to make it look like they're trying to get political gain out of Donald Trump's disaster, as it were. That's just speculation. But I get what you're saying. And, you know, and I'm seeing it, too, that there's not, there's yeah, not a lot of I'm, conversation uh, out there. You know, I'm a history teacher. And I'm really worried. I got kids, you know, asking me questions on the online classes and stuff. And I'm worried that you know, this is the end of America. If he steals this election, I couldn't see us ever coming back. I bet he would appoint himself president for life and or king and name his children as his heirs. But it really got me scared. And I want to know, why hasn't somebody asked the Republicans, who do you owe allegiance to, America or Trump? I mean, because right well, now it that, looks like that's who the most important thing is in their life is my allegiance to Trump, not America right, and not right. the people. Who are you in with, the United States of America or a petulant billionaire who is owned by several foreign governments? 
<laughs> I think that's a really, really good question, and it needs to be put forward. Mm -hmm. Anthony, thank you. Spot on. Patrick in Fountain Green Cedar City, Utah. Obama appeared on 60 Minutes with an open mic with Scott Pelley, supposedly, you know, the gold standard of journalism with 60 Minutes, and literally just dropped the mic on Trump about integrity and virtues and the truth of the presidency as if President Obama was the gold standard. Meanwhile, it was the lies of the Obama presidency that covered up the greatest grift and cover up in history, Wall Street's great financial crisis that was all engineered, by the way, that led to a $29 trillion transfer of wealth to the guys who did it. I guess my point with that is context, and I wanted your thoughts on this for your viewers, is ultimately Obama lie, which is the neoliberal lie, made the neo-fascist lie inevitable, and we're in a death spiral. I would agree with that analysis, and hopefully this will be the shock to the system that wakes us up, you know, that takes us out of that, you know, what you're describing as a death spiral, because you're right. And I think that neoliberalism plays a big role in this. And, and let's not forget the father of modern neoliberalism, the first president of the United States since Herbert Hoover, who embraced neoliberal ideology, was Ronald Reagan. And we have been living in a neoliberal era since 1981. And no president has backed away from that. And I am very hopeful that Joe Biden will. You know, I'm not holding my breath, but I'm hopeful because it has gutted this country. It has gutted the American middle class. It has provided fertile ground for people like Donald Trump to come along and say, hey, he wouldn't say it this way. But those neoliberals, keep in mind, it was Reagan and Bush who negotiated NAFTA. Those neoliberals, you know, set your jobs overseas. Those neoliberals are the people who, who gutted America and therefore put me in power and I'll do something about them. And then he goes ahead and he's just, I mean, he's more neoliberal than they are. And frankly, I think short of fascist, you've got to come up with a better term than neoliberalism because people go, what's that mean? And it sounds sort of like you're attacking liberals. <laughs> oh, not at all. Can I offer this as a final thought for you to, to, to ponder? To my lens, you know, what we're dealing with here is literally, quite literally, and I, I happen to unfortunately know a lot about this because I'm an investigative journalist and a documentarian that, that put it all together, but with a whole lot of people. But the bottom line is that if you want a term for this, people are calling it neo-feudalism. I call it a corporate fascist state undergirded by criminality and corruption. That's the point. If you've got yeah. the Fed bazooka, if you've got control of the Fed bazooka, the demand isn't coming from the aggregate demand of the people. It's coming from the system to benefit the system of deception. Honestly, it sounds insane because it is. No, it's called propping up the stock market, Patrick. And the stock market is where the wealthy right. people put their money. And, and yeah. it's turned into, because Reagan changed the rules in the mid-80s, I think it was 86, 87. Um, he changed the rules saying that executives could be compensated with stock and corporations could yep. buy their own stock. Those two things were illegal. Absolutely. Those were reforms after the, the great market crash in 1929. Those were both illegal. Reagan legalized both yes, those sir. things. And what we've had ever since is an explosion in the price of the stock market it's not the value, it's the price. And why is the price going up? Because there are fewer stocks. Why are there fewer stocks, actual shares of stocks? Because companies are buying them back and retiring their stocks. And in fact, there are literally half as many companies right now publicly traded in the United States, listed on public stock exchanges, as there were in 1980. Half as many. We are seeing massive consolidations. This is why I wrote this book on monopolies. We're seeing massive consolidation. Yes. And the vehicle for that is the deregulation that happened during the Reagan era. And it is gutting 
the American economy and it's gutting the American middle class. Patrick, very well said. Thank you for the call. Charlie in Redwood City, California. Hey, Charlie, what's up? Hi, Tom. It's actually Redwood Valley, California, but that's okay. Redwood Valley. You're right. I'm sorry. Thank you. Yeah. I would love nothing more than to see uh, Donald in prison, but frankly, I don't think it'll ever happen. And the reason is you get Secret Service protection for life, and he'd be too much of a of a risk if he was in prison. I don't think Secret Service is going to want to go to prison with him. Oh, they could just give him his own cell and put a Secret Service agent on, you know, sitting in the hall outside. I mean, it would be the most boring <laughs> duty for the Secret Service. But, hey, they're used to boring stuff. I mean, these are the guys who sit in the stairwells and hotels to make sure that, you know, mm-hmm. nobody's trying to creep into the onto the floor where the where the executive is. So. I, yeah, I I'm thinking at best he might end up with house arrest, but that would be the big thing is if he was in prison, he'd be a huge yeah. security risk with what he apparently knows. He's already a huge security risk, and God only knows what he has, you know, what he has handed out to these other governments. And now he's a flight risk. Charlie, spot on. I think guarding the presidential cell in Leavenworth uh, would probably be a very noble activity for a good patriotic member of the Secret Service. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Speaking the truth, the multinational corporations would really rather you didn't know. For our book club today, we're reading from The Healing Power of Neurofeedback, the Revolutionary Lens Technique for Restoring Optimal Brain Function. The author is Stephen Larson, Ph.D., and the foreword is by a guy named Tom Hartman. This is from uh, Stephen Larson's introduction. As the distinguished American psychologist Jerome Brunner has said, not until we have begun to tell a story about our own experience does it make sense to ourselves as well as to others. This book is the story of my experiences with neurofeedback, an emerging technology of healing in which EEG, electroencephalography, processors and computers team up with the brain's own circuits to accomplish remarkable forms of self-regulation. 
It's also the story of the development and evolution of a particular kind of neurofeedback known as LENS, Low Energy Neurofeedback System, which emerged from the work and research of a dedicated psychologist with an affinity for electronics and an intuitive understanding of the energies of the body, Dr. Len Oakes. But most of what is presented here are stories relating the actual living experiences of men and women struggling with disorders that affect their nervous systems. Parents looking for help with their children afflicted with attention deficit or obsessive compulsive disorder. People who are depressed or anxious and have run out of medication options. People with a head injury or the sudden onset of a degenerative disease that has left them cognitively impaired or emotionally unstable. These stories are in the area that the scientifically minded might refer to as qualitative research, clinical studies, or narrative histories. In this book, you will also find the stories of therapists who grow as they confront their own challenges in understanding, developing new healing paradigms, and learning how to help people who are very sensitive neurologically. Although we also cite and rely upon much hard evidence, scientific data, and measurement, and use refined high-tech equipment that measures the energy of the brain exquisitely, the real heart of what we have to say is about the personal hero journeys that transform the self and expand human therapeutic technologies. These stories move the heart as well as inform the mind. The discipline called neurofeedback or neurotherapy is itself a subdiscipline of biofeedback, a term broadly used for techniques of self-regulation. In biofeedback, a machine is used to generate electronic signals that inform a person about factors such as his or her hand temperature or muscle tension. Starting in the 1950s, it was discovered that Guided by such feedback, a person could learn to raise or lower blood pressure, quiet muscle spasms, or soothe an irritable bowel. Neurofeedback is simply the application of this same principle to the electrical waves produced by the brain as recorded on an EEG, an electroencephalograph. With subtlety and skill, it is helping thousands of children and adults learn to regulate their own nervous systems, a not insignificant matter. For the CNS, the central nervous system, determines just how one functions in life. The field of neurofeedback is not yet well known enough to have a reputation based on its remarkable efficacy, perhaps because its premises seem closer to the traditional wisdom and spiritual disciplines of the East than to the dominant Western scientific paradigm. But this dominant model is changing as millions of people instinctively and wisely aim themselves toward complementary and alternative medical approaches and as disciplines broadly known as energy medicine reemerge into the public theater. Energy medicine had a fledgling career toward the end of the 19th and beginning of the 20th centuries, but it was displaced by the monolithic and, it should be added, chauvinistic, allopathic approach that most of us have grown up with. Critics have pointed out that while Western medicine has indisputable benefits, especially in dealing with serious illnesses and health crises, it has very little to contribute when it comes to staying healthy and avoiding illness. Neurofeedback is a people's medicine that has emerged from the work of dedicated clinicians and their satisfied patients. And it is my belief that the work of Len Oaks will come to the forefront of neurofeedback and that neurofeedback itself will take a significant place in the public awareness among those approaches that are not trying to displace Western medicine, but complement it. So people with conventional medical and scientific educations need not feel threatened by this method. I believe it does more than challenge our current paradigm. It expands it in a healthy direction. In fact, the work presented herein is entirely compatible with the scientific method and pragmatic empiricism. 
However, I will confess that this book was written by some strange kind of maverick, wearing motley intellectual clothing, always sniffing down the trails of misery, more committed to journeys than to arriving anywhere. One part of me is a good modern thinker, a psychology professor and a social scientist, as grounded in a post-Newtonian universe as anyone else. The other part of me has always had a fancy for myth and magic, and my published writing includes both scholarly and popular books on shamanism, mythology, and some biographical works, including A Fire in the Mind, The Life of Joseph Campbell. While researching Campbell's biography, I found that he also considered himself a maverick. I discovered that we are alike in another way. We both believed invisible things play an all-important part in shaping human behavior. For Campbell, it was myths, as he called them, of the immemorial imagination. But my professional focus has always been on consciousness and energy. Healing Power of Neurofeedback by Steve Larson. Schiller Park, Illinois. Hey, Al, what's up? I wanted to talk a little bit about conservative media and how that gets to so many local hosts as well and what their motivation is because, you know, we have various ones here and I just don't necessarily understand why so many of them are going with all the corporate lines, even right now with the election and everything. And Ken Vogel did a great piece for Politico magazine about five years ago, in which he pointed out that the Heritage Foundation is giving $2 million a year to Rush Limbaugh and a $1 million a year to Sean Hannity. Um, I'm guessing that there is a, it, it, we know that the Kochs have funded these uh, state networks in every state, and I'm guessing that they're supporting the local right-wing talk show hosts. I have no proof of that, but it, it would be consistent with what they're doing at the national level with the big national talkers. So they know which side the bread is buttered on, you know, these billionaires. <laughs> it ain't the side that has democracy on it. Hey, thanks so much to Louise Hartman, Sean Taylor, Nate Atwell, Jamie Holly, Joyce Nance, Nigel Peacock, Sue Nethercutt, Patrick Hoyt, Geraldine Halbert, Dave Fulton, Ron Hartenbaum, Chase Sprouse, Nicholas Miller, Pat Sweeney, and Jabbermocky for helping keep our program on the air. And thank you to you for sharing the good word, telling your friends about us, and for listening and calling in. Get out there, get active, tag. You've been You're listening. It. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 